So big Star Trek nerd, like the day we get to Lieutenant Commander Data is the day I'm okay, like getting emotional support (laughs) from a robot. (laughs) Right, right. by Entity Data Podcast. I'm Gina Trapani, and I lead product at launch. And before I move on, one more sentence. I just want to take a moment to tell you what I mean when I say the word launch. So launch is a talented group of people inside of NTT Data. NTT Data is one of the world's largest IT services firms. And Launch's mandate is to design and build beautiful, easy-to-use products and platforms with our clients. Launch's clients are some of the biggest companies in the world, nonprofits, sometimes startups, companies that you've heard of whose products you use, companies like NASDAQ and Goldman Sachs and Puck and the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, the National Audubon Society. We work across industries and we strategize, ship, and scale world-class digital experiences. And that's why we're here, because we just, we love talking about this stuff. We love making great software because the truth is there's so much crappy software in the world. Let's make it better. Let's make it better. We all live in software every day, so we want to make it better. So that's all. Thank you for listening to my mini TED Talk. Uh, as always, I'm joined here on the show today with my business partner, Chris Lasaco. Hey, Chris. Hey, Gina. I feel like we should just stop the podcast right here. That that, was, was that it? That was a great pitch. <laughs> that was really good. Uh, here's the thing. I'm not pitching. I'm not selling. I'm just explaining because there's a few words in the title explain. of the podcast now. It's true. It's 2024. Let me just make sure that we know what we mean when we say launch. Because, you know, it's a verb. It's a noun. You know, it's, you got to. You can take it a lot of different ways. <laughs> you really right? can. You really and, can. And uh, premium custom software development is not necessarily the first association you have with launch. So that's why that's we right. need to be explicit about it. That's right. So, yes. Thank yeah. you for that. It was great. We have a very special guest today, Gina. Yes. I'm it's very not just you and me this. in this virtual studio. Man, the coolest thing about launch is that we have such like smart and talented and experienced and opinionated really colleagues. Yes. And we have one of them on with us today. She's one of my absolute favorites. This has been on the calendar. It took us a while to get this on the calendar. I'm so excited to introduce Lisa Whipley to the show. Hey, Lisa. Hey, hey, Gina. Um, I'm definitely opinionated. I don't know about the other stuff. But. <laughs> I love it. We'll take it. We'll take it. We'll take it. We, we love opinions. Uh, we love opinions grounded in, in experience and seeing things. And, yeah, and I know you have seen some things. Lisa, you're the uh, mm-hmm. vice president at launch, general manager, leading the Northeast region. But you've had many other lives. You also, I learned recently, yeah. and we've been working together for quite some time, that you teach a class at Rutgers, which I want to hear about. Yep. And... We were in uh, the launch Slack and we were chatting about, you know, all the things you chat about, all the different, you know, problems and aspects of, of building for our clients. And, and you know, the whole world is talking about AI right now <laughs> in every single way, right? And our clients are looking at us and going, what about AI? And you brought up, you were talking about, you know, designing uh, with AI and for AI in an ethical way. And the thread took off and we were like, we got to talk about this on yeah. the show. So, yeah. So tell us a little bit about yourself, about your background and, and why you're thinking about this particular topic. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, the short answer about why I started in college, my non-traditional background started with, I have a degree in philosophy. I don't Amazing. have a degree in Very design. cool. <laughs> Love it. Amazing. And I actually was on my way to getting an English degree, took my first philosophy class, fell in love with it. Um, and so ethics has been a part of my being mm-hmm. since that point, because it was the ethical questions that, that made me love those classes. Mm-hmm. 
But I, you know, sort of self-taught designer, started to build up a portfolio and ended up after a brief stint as a singer in a rock band, um, which I had hoped Ooh. would be my career. So Turned good. out it wasn't. If we have time, we're going to come back to that. That's, oh, my gosh. There are some <laughs> that stories there. That is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not surprised by that at all. I see you in a Joan Jett like, like vibe going on, Lisa. <laughs> I love that. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so unfortunately that didn't pan out. Um, but I was also the the designer of the band, meaning the flyers and that, right? So you start to build up a portfolio that somehow I managed to turn into an actual career. Uh, no idea how. So I came up in design as a designer, went to work for an advertising agency, uh, pharma advertising, e-business. So that'll give you an idea of my age. <laughs> I'll stop there because it wasn't digital back then. Um and to be honest, the, the path that led me here, design has always been at the heart of what I do, but the, the path that ultimately led me to accepting the role as, as general manager over here at Launch is because Launch truly is design-led. So to me, it wasn't sort of a, it wasn't a strange, you know, connect to go from leading designers to leading an entire region where it's end-to-end -end from strategy all the way through to development, because at the end of the day, we're creating experiences, and that's really what what brought me passion. So, you know, I moved around, you know, singer, <laughs> artist, uh, creative director at an agency, and then ultimately ended up here. I love this. My, I, some of the most talented and, and, and interesting people did not did not necessarily get, you know, the degree and exactly where, where they wound up, especially in in our business, in our industry. Like having the, yeah. that windy road is that's a wonderful thing. Uh, I love that you started as an English major and went to philosophy. So so ethics is a lens in which you, you look at things because that's just in your formative yeah. years. That's what drew you to philosophy. And so so I'm sure you've had a lot of interesting conversations and viewpoints about technology and ethics through the years. A AI yeah. is a big one, though. Like AI is like is. It's huge. Uh, there's something particular about it because you've got AI taking over the world and taking jobs and and being you know by it and all those things. But like you know the internet, like I, I'm I've been around for a long time too, Lisa. I think as long as you have been. So <laughs> I remember the time before the web and before the internet, right? And you could have said a, a lot of things, right, about the internet and the web, right? And yes, every tool you can you can use the wrong way, and, and it's like well, it's you know it's, it's kind of the same thing, but it's a little bit more complicated with AI, right? Like it's a, there's a, it's a little bit yeah. more complicated. Yeah. So yeah. Tell, tell me tell me. About about it. Yeah. And look, there's two aspects that people forget about AI when they're thinking about the ethics of AI. One is how AI is leveraged to take your data and let's, let's use negative situations, take sure. your data and manipulate mm -hmm, you, right? Mm -hmm. There's that aspect of AI. But then if you also think about, so the other thing I left out and you mentioned it, I teach an intro to user experience design in a master's program at Rutgers University. Mm -hmm. The other piece of it that came up there had to do with as conversational AI starts to become more prevalent, is it okay in all situations if somebody doesn't know that they're talking to an AI, right? Mm -hmm. that, that's an ethical component to it as well. Mm -hmm. It's not as nefarious, in my opinion, as some of the other conversations we have around AI, around manipulation of data and exploitation. But it's still something that concerns me. And then, of course, there's the bias aspect behind it as well. Yeah. yeah. So you have to look at those different lenses when you're thinking about it. But ultimately, AI to me isn't the, the true quote unquote threat. And I don't think it's a threat. I think, you know, it's like any tool in the right or wrong hands. Yeah. To me, it really has to do with the data 
and how the data gets used that the AI is, is using. It's just the AI has accelerated that, right? Because forever, marketing has been using research and data to influence people or yes. in bad negative cases, manipulate them. And that was before AI. The problem is with AI, it's on it's like exponentially increased in terms of the speed and the the reach that that manipulation or influence can go. That's right. Yeah, that's right. You just said a lot of things that we could unpack. Because <laughs> I know, there are like you know, 17 roads I want to go down. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but so just to build on this idea that it's about the data, because I think this is, it's such a good point, right? And so I think back to like, when did Google start messing with self-driving cars? It was a while ago, but not that long ago. Like, 2010, maybe like 15 All years ago. To how old you are? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, we're, well, yeah. Sure. not that long yeah. ago for me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I remember, you know, the the big question at that point was like, how are they gonna deal with problems where the safety of the driver and the safety of like pedestrians are at odds? Right? How do you the trolley the trolley problem? problem. Right? Exactly. Philosophers have been talking about this forever. For, right. For, right. for that centuries. That is a philosophy question. That's yes. right. Do you reroute the train, right, to save a family member, right. but you know that 10 people are going to die? But the question was always like, how are the programmers going to deal with this, right? Like, how are they going to write the code so that they know which choice to make in any given situation? Are there going to be preferences or knobs that you can flip on? There was a lot of debate about that. But what is interesting now is that the questions are different because what's happening is the way that these uh, large language models and, and these very large data sets are being consumed and training, right? And you're doing machine learning on these large data sets. And then you're just letting the system make decisions. And you, you don't know. You, the programmer, don't necessarily know what is leading to those decisions, which is like kind of cool in some sense, but also really scary. Like that is like, what do we have on our hands? And to hear, you know, right. some of the developers who are working on these chat-like interfaces and they're like, you know, I'm not exactly sure why it's hallucinating right now or why it gave a given answer. <laughs> you know, we can't, we can't say because that's just not how this works. That's really intense. And so to, yeah. to bring it back to like, then you say, well, you know, the ethics of what you're producing is only going to be as good as the data that you feed into it. And when you're working with such large data sets, that seems really hard to control. So uh, I guess my question is, like, are, are there approaches that we should be thinking about or are there like guardrails that we should be putting into place? Because it's a whole different playing field now, right? It's not just yeah. like, you know, you can do this and you shouldn't do that. It's like we have to rethink how we are formulating some of these systems. Yep. And so that leads me to the quote that I leave with my students at the end of the ethics lecture, which is, you designers are the guardians of the human, and it is your job <laughs> to be that voice yeah. when this stuff, I, I let That's it on, when this stuff, stuff is happening. Yeah. But it's real. Because what you, yeah, what you just described, Chris, and it's, look, developers are thinking about the code that they have to develop, and they're all human. They want to do the right thing, but they don't necessarily have the the language and the understanding and the tools and methods to really be thinking about when we're designing this AI, what is the impact to the human? Yes. That's right. And so what often happens is we see it all the time in business because there's not an interface, right? There's not a visual thing. They don't think they need a designer on the project. Right. Yeah. Because they're like, you're not designing anything, but it's like, no, we're you're designing a relationship now, and that becomes even more important. And forget about it being visual. The toolkits for designers has totally changed. 
yes. now. Yeah, and, you right. know, so we're coming up with what you, you know, the, the, the version of wireframes and prototypes now are things like, you know, conver- conversational architecture. And that's, that's not a technologist creating that. That's a designer. And so my, and my, the designers want to be at the table for this. So my ask is, is never really to the designers because they're like, yes, it is to our clients and to technologists everywhere. Like, please get a designer <laughs> involved yeah. early right? because they're going to be the ones thinking about, well, how would somebody interact with this? And what is the impact that that's going to have on them? Totally, totally. That's my piece of advice. That guardrail is to get a good designer whose job it is to be the voice of the human as you're creating this technology. Right. And question some of these decisions that are being made as you're creating something. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, be in a position where, you know, assume that you're not going to think of everything up front, but be in a position of when you you realize that something's going wrong, you have the ability to fix it. Yes. Quickly. Yes. I mean, the thing you said, Chris, about this idea, and this is something that just burns me, you know, as someone who was a you know, a back-end engineer and has, you know, written a lot of code in my life. I mean, one of the tools as an engineer is this idea, is this, is this ability to be able to introspect yeah. and say, this bug is happening. Now I'm going to trace back, okay? What were the calls that were made? What were the functions? What was output? What was the database query? What was the, and then I can trace it all the way back and say, ah, I see why these particular instructions were executed and why the output was what it was. You can't do this with AI, nope. <laughs> uh, because the data set is so big and because the, the I, I actually, I, I'm actually not totally sure why we can't, it feels like we should put some more effort into understanding. <laughs> Here's the thing, Gina, I was about to say, yeah. yeah, like I don't have that answer right now, but I think that is something that we can do. But yeah. again, I would say you've got to have the person looking at it to say something's going say wrong, because in this going case, wrong. it's right. not as obvious that something's going wrong. That's right. right. Yeah. I mean, you said something earlier, Lisa, about the question of like, you know, in a conversational AI product, for example, chat GPT like, when are you, you know, transparent about the fact that you're not speaking to a human, right? I mean, I think, you know, a lot of us have used chat GPT. I, I view chat GPT the way I look at a Google search. Like I'm, I'm very aware that mm-hmm. this is a, a machine, right? You could think about a little customer service bot on an e-commerce site, mm-hmm. you know, maybe sure. answering questions about a product. Uh, that's kind of a gray area for me, but I would assume that that is, you know, maybe a human is involved, but, you know, all right, probably machine, right? There was this app, and I don't remember the name of it, but essentially it created like a a friend, an AI-powered mm-hmm. friend, you know, where you'd start this app as a mobile app, and you'd say, you know, I want this person to be kind of this gender and look like this and have this background, and you give it information about yourself, and this app would essentially, like, text you every day, like, nice, you know, messages, and it would ask you for more information about yourself. And so, and, and so I used it. I used it for a few weeks. And I think what, what was so fascinating to me, even fully understanding that this was an AI, it got very personal, <laughs> like, very quickly. And yeah. I had to uninstall it. I was like, this feels weird. I, I don't like this. I, you know, the, the constant sort of prompts to give more information, right? Because the more information that the, you know, the system has, the more personal the messages can be. This is, I mean, this is, you know, the basis of all marketing data. But it's different right. when I'm being shown a banner for, you know, cool sneakers that look a little bit like the ones I just bought, right? Or when I have, you know, a fake special friends, you know, AI-powered friend, like, asking me how my, how my day went. And yeah. like, you know, how's that, you know, whatever, how am I feeling today? Like, the, it, it's a it's a very different thing. Um, so even if you're upfront about, and ChatGPT will often say, you know, I'm not here for medical advice. There are certain go- like roadblocks that they've right. clearly built into the product. Even then, because it's that interface that like, looks just like a text with my friend, you start to sort of suspend your, <laughs> you know, your disbelief a little bit and be like, oh, right. this must be the answer. Or it's just human nature because it's conversational and that's how we talk to one another. 
Yeah, and you know, in the situation you talked about, it is kind of interesting in that um, you called out a very specific scenario. Yeah. But we regularly have conversations with clients where they want to apply something like that. Yes to an initiative that they're doing. And there is nothing wrong with that. But again, you need those guardrails around it because then it's not necessarily an opt-in thing, right? So then it becomes the question of at what point are you telling them you're not talking to a real person? And I I will give you straight from my student's mouth, and it's the answer that they give me to this question that I ask them has changed over the last few semesters, oh. and it's blowing me away, the direction it's going. So I don't know if you saw, it must have been like five or six years ago, Google I.O. came out with that new, th- and they did a big reveal, and it was, they showed it calling a restaurant. Oh, I remember this. So the, the AI called a restaurant and made a reservation. And it was amazing. You couldn't tell that it was a bot that right. had called the restaurant. It was like talking back and forth, right? Like It was talking back and forth. The woman at the restaurant got confused. And you know how with most bots, when you talk to them, like if you stray off of the path, like they don't know what to do. It figured out what her confusion was and was like, mm. oh, no, that's not what I meant. Crazy. So when I was starting to add the module for conversational AI into the class, I played that. And I, you know, asked the question, you know, so at first I said, has anybody seen this? Do you notice anything about either of the people talking? And most of them don't realize it's a bot. And then I'm like, well, the person on the left who called the restaurant is not an actual human. And then they're like, whoa. And then I asked them the question, is it okay that the lady who answered the phone at the restaurant didn't know that wasn't a person? And they were like, yeah, that's okay. And I said, okay, now let me give you a scenario. You're a life insurance company. Mm. my husband just passed away Mm. and I need to call you because there are, you know, I'm in a very emotional state and there's final things. Is it okay if I don't know I'm talking to a bot? Mm. And at the beginning, they were all like, absolutely not. You have to tell them. And look, and I'm still on the camp of in those. And believe me, there's clients are trying to figure out a way to crack this code of how do we use it. We don't have any client asking us to use it in that kind of scenario. But it's not hard to imagine that there might be at some point somebody trying to do that. The thing that blew me away was two semesters ago, a couple of the students said, it's okay. In fact, I'd rather talk to the bot in that situation. And I said, why? And now get this. Because I believe that somebody could program more empathy into that bot than you get from the average oh. person who's answering oh. the phone. And it, oh. it like, oh my God. right in the heart. Yeah. That, okay, yeah. okay. I've now been plunged into a deep depression. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's a generation. Yeah, that so there's not- cynicism there too, yeah. right? Of when I call, I'm not getting the right help. I didn't even know how to respond oh. to that. Wow. Yeah, that was not where I thought we were going here. But okay. No, okay. <laughs> and look, it wasn't a, a general thing, but it did. It got me thinking, though. Got me thinking of two things. One is we need to better empower contact center reps who answer the phone to, like, you know, you need to make sure you've got the right people answering the phone. Right. But on the other hand, um, there's a lot of faith in technology, and mm. that, that answer scared me. Because it's a younger generation that does not have this necessarily as much skepticism towards this kind of technology as I do. Yeah. 
That's it's so interesting. I mean, right. We want to create call centers where people have the headspace and the time and the resources to be in the right emotional place to speak exactly. to someone in a terrible. And right. I mean, you know, capitalism. Right. But it's so interesting. Your students are basically like, let's just outsource the emotional labor of being, you know, empathetic to someone who just suffered a great loss because no one in real life is really going to have the time or resources to do that. I know. And, that, you know, and look, and I'm a so big Star Trek nerd. Like the day we get to Lieutenant Commander Data is the day I'm OK, like getting emotional support from a robot. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But, uh, you know, and I just I suggested to them that they had a little more faith in technology than they probably should. Right, right, right. So have you seen over time then that fa- you, that faith grows bigger, right? Like you, your younger students are more likely to say, mm-hmm. So is the, is the feeling like, don't, don't need to know if it's a bot, just, you know, assuming that I'm having a transaction with a, you know, maybe a human, maybe a bot, doesn't really matter, just please, you know, get, get done, need to get done with me, don't, don't need to disclose? Does the opinion start to go that way? Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it is, like, it kind of, I think it's changing a little bit, but they're not taking the, the potential for manipulation as seriously as right. I think they probably, and I don't want to generalize by any, because right. of a comment a couple of, you know, students sure, made. Sure, of course. But the one thing I am saying that I will, there is a little bit less of a concern about data privacy yeah. than I'm comfortable with. And part of it, if, if you ask students when I talk about this, they're like, well, everything's already out there. Yeah, yeah they sort of give it up. But I think a lot of people feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. like, right. It's already out there. And if you get to, if you get young enough, they're like, you know, my parents have been posting pictures <laughs> of me on social media since I was a kid. That's real. <laughs> right, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. And I mean, look, this is like, like, and the more data that you provide or the more data that someone has about you, I had, I had LinkedIn, you know, like write my bio and it was an AI thing and it like scanned my work history. And what it came up with, it was a little generic, but, it, but I was like, oh, like this is pretty good. This is pretty good. And I know yeah. it was good because I yeah. gave more data. You actually incentivized to give a little bit more data. And of course, companies want more data about you because they want to create that relationship with you, you know, that, that connect. They want to, you know, provide that service to you. And it's easier to do when they have more information about you. Right. But, uh, but see, LinkedIn yeah. is low stakes, right? Like, what if you raised the stakes? Yeah. What if you said, I'm going to replace visits to my primary care physician with a conversational artificial mm-hmm. intelligence that is giving me guidance, preventative guidance on like healthcare things. And I mean, eventually maybe prescribing drugs, question mark. Like this is where the ethical questions start to come in because it's like, well, how, how much, how much do we allow these things to guide our lives in ways that just feel very uh, high stakes? Like, you know, Mm -hmm. if you make a wrong call or a wrong recommendation, I mean, in some situations, like it could be life and death, you know? Right. I mean, yeah. devil's advocate, there's a possibility that an AI doctor would actually make fewer mistakes than well, human exactly. doctors who are, you know, busy and harried and, you know, look at the, you know, right? Like, it's, it, go, it calls both sides. Right. Uh, yeah, not that I'm ready to, you know, get prescriptions from an AI, but. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's what's interesting to go back to something you said at the beginning, Lisa. Like, that's what's in- interesting about, like, maybe offering options and just disclaiming them and saying, like, yeah. you know, if we make it really clear that you are right. interacting with an AI and that there are boundaries around what you can reasonably expect, you know, maybe as the field advances and the capabilities advance, we also, we up the clarity, you know, we make it like much more explicit Precisely. what's happening. Yeah. yeah. And I also go back to, to what both of you were saying earlier, which is my challenge to the technology industry is how do we make that black box transparent? Yeah. Yes. So that we can get a better 
idea of how the decisions are made? And then what's the governance process in place to identify when something is going wrong or it's not decisions are being made that maybe aren't the right decisions? Mm -hmm. Can we do sort of a regression, like go back and try to figure out, you know, do some root cause analysis? Because right now... Chris, to your point early, like we can't do that because it's a black box. Right. Yeah. There is like a garbage in, garbage out thing, thing happening yeah. too, right? So like a lot of the AI yeah. is based on these large language models that come from these like, you know, uh, you know, enormous data sets that are pulled from, I couldn't, I like, I couldn't tell you where ChatGPT, like but from the internet, you know? Which everybody knows the internet's a great source of truth. <laughs> right. Great source of truth. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But there's a little bit of like, who is doing the governance and the choosing of that data? Who looks that data on the way in and says like, this is, you know, and you and you really are making decisions about like the knowledge of humanity, right? But not just on the way out, also on on the way in. Uh, and I think that we, you know we think about the user experience, right, and designing the front end and that and that, that experience of the customer. But there's also the other side, which is like lo- you know <laughs> loading it up with the inform- the data that it needs that it's running off of. Yeah. Also. Yeah. How do you define garbage in? You know. Right. Yeah. How, who defines garbage? Right. Because <laughs> yeah. garbage is is subjective, right? Yes. And there are things that. Uh, don't easily fall clearly into garbage or not garbage, right? Like, I mean, to go back to the bias question for a second, like what if, you know, historically a certain gender was associated with a profession and then you ask an AI, like, you know, who's going to be a doctor or whatever, and then you get an answer that's like not a great answer, but it's because it was trained on a a certain amount of biased data, you know? And so how do you correct for that as you're loading it in or after the fact to say, well, we've got to make sure that we understand this is learning on a flawed, quote unquote, data set? Yeah. And look, that is the the key. And there are armies of people working on this problem. Yeah. And in fact, uh, I just got Joy Bolomini's book, Unmasking AI. Oh, cool. And if anybody ever watches the Netflix special Coded Bias, oh. it's about her and the Algorithmic Justice League. That is an awesome, I, I recommend it to all my students. She's talking specifically about this problem of how do you prevent the data mm-hmm. from being biased that comes in. But the, the first and most important thing is to recognize you cannot prevent biased data from getting right. in. Mm-hmm. You, you can't. So stop trying. There's going to be some level of bias coming in. Then you have to figure out how do we mitigate that in the decisions that the AI is making? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's really where the governance has to come in. Because you're right, we're, like, who is the arbiter of truth in terms of what is the correct data to come in? We've all learned, especially if you look at historically underrepresented people having challenges getting mortgages because yes. they look at historical data, exactly. right? And, you know, should a woman be a doctor? Well, let's look at historical data, right? <laughs> right. So we've kind of learned that, some of that stuff we've gotten better at, like, let's not pull historical data. But there's so many other things that that come into it. To Gina, to your point, there's this vast quantity of data that we just have to accept that it is going to be biased and we have yeah. to figure out how do we manage it. Yeah. Right, right. And how do we respond when we see the output being right. skewed in the wrong way? Right. There is an interesting collision between the technology, right, and the design of these kinds of systems and uh, philosophy or or like yeah, yeah. societal pressures because what is acceptable also changes over time and mm-hmm. differs based on the culture that you're a part of or the population that you're in. And m- maybe there's a future where these things are like tunable 
based on the context that they're deployed in because you may want something to be, you know, very safe in one situation and a little more adventurous in another. And you want those like controls to be aware of where the AI is deployed, is present. Even as I'm saying this, though, I'm like not totally sure. Like it's a very murky pool. There's not going to be an answer. It's going to be a way of thinking about it. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. One of the wildest chat GPT features that I have played with is like that you can ask it to speak in a certain tone or a certain context or in the way that a particular public figure would say it. Like, you know, there's someone who's done enough writing. So, you know, using the phrases that the way that, you know, we have now AI suggesting uh, what what email response we should write. It, it, It's what when Gmail suggests a certain phrases that I say all the time, but then seeing the suggestion, I'm like, oh, I guess I, I guess I do say that. Through <laughs> <laughs> a mirror holding it back up to you, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, maybe I should try to find a word other than awesome. Right. Uh, <laughs> so there's like a little bit of that, but I, I also like what you're saying, Chris, about context and and you know what was an. Ex- I mean, language changes so quickly, right? right. Things that were acceptable yeah. that you could say, you know, acceptable or or fine, you know, wouldn't raise an eyebrow in a room even two years ago you know, might, might now or, or the opposite. Lisa, I'm, I'm curious. So, I mean, we talked about how you talk to your, your students about this and designers, um, but you're also, you are out talking to clients and companies and mm-hmm. we're in a moment in the industry where AI is here. And I think there's a sense of like FOMO from executives and leaders um, who are feeling oh, yeah. like, I, I got to get on this train. It's going to get ahead of me. I'm going to lose to my competitors. You know, these, you, you get this whole rash of startups who basically can't raise VC unless they have like the words AI on their front page. And it's, so it's, just, it's a little bit of a feed frenzy at the moment I'm, I'm curious like what do you hear when you talk to clients um when they say ai to you when they ask you about ai or the things that they're worried about ai i'm curious like what are you hearing and how do you advise them away from doing stuff that we, <laughs> maybe isn't you know very kosher from an ethical <laughs> standpoint <Yeah. laughs> so so you gave me a, you gave me a lot to unpack yeah, there. Yeah, so, <laughs> so yeah every single like the ai ml conversations have really ramped up in the last like couple of years, mm-hmm. it really varies. Clients are looking for for one of two things from it. I call it top line and bottom line. Like they're either looking for it to save money, right? So either can we replace people? Can even if using things like um, generative AI with your coders, so you can code faster. Right. right? right. Sure. So how do we do things faster, more efficiently? Then there's the top of funnel, which is. Not just the conversational AI, which I would argue is not top of funnel. It is cost savings, but sometimes clients are like, people want it. <laughs> but there is the top line of the data and how do we get the data and how do we use the data so that we can, you know, either target people or pair the right people. So, I mean, those are the conversations that we're having. There is that fear of missing out, but then they're also recognizing they're seeing it work in other places and so they're they're really latching on to where they've seen it work in other places. And we really have to try to help them contextualize it because it might be working in one instance and it's not a one-to-one application for what they're trying to do. But ultimately, right, so they're, they're like, you know, inevitably we'll see somebody with an extremely complex business being like, oh, I want to be like Amazon. And it's like, okay. We'll try to get you there. It's a little more complicated than that. Right. Or like, you know, you want your website to look as simple as a Google search page. It's like, okay. I've heard that <laughs> one too. Let, let's unpack that, right? So whenever they come to us with this conversation, AIML, there probably is 
a component of that in the answer, but that you don't, we don't want to start there. We have to start with what are you trying to do? What is the problem? It's, it, and it goes back to the basics of design thinking, right? Let's identify the problem. Let's identify what you're trying to do. We know AIML is in our tool belt. And so we can bring that to bear and we can bring that lens even when we're looking at what are the challenges that you're trying to solve. But I really don't want to go in and say, AIML, I want to do something with it. What can we do? We'll do that and we'll have that conversation. Right. But inevitably, it's always going to circle back to, I don't know, what problems are you trying to solve? What problems and then are let's figure out how we can apply it. <laughs> right, in your business, not like yeah. the thing you saw over yeah. there looks really good or, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the most interesting things about chat GPT, and, I, and I'm forgetting what the statistic was, but its adoption curve was so steep. I think probably the steepest in the history of any sort of like, you know, web-based application, right? Because people just got it because it was a texting. I mean, people understand how to use chat. And that made, you know, a ton of sense to me. And and really the interface itself is so simple. I mean, it's just a text box. It's a text box. And then a response that in reverse chronological order. And what I loved about that, I was like, oh, we can get back to basics. Like, I I love when somebody says, you know, I want our homepage to be as simple as Google. Because I think too, just most of the times we just try to jam a bunch of stuff in there and, you know, just do something completely new that no one's ever seen before. It's like, you know what? Just go to where the, you know, give something to the user that they immediately understand uh, and know how to use, right? And ChatGPT was like such a good example of that. Like, this is an interface that people get. And and it, and that's why it took off. Yeah, because I saw you sort of sh- well, like shrugging. I, I, yeah, I want to hear. I mean, this is good. <laughs> I, I would counter it a little bit because I, I again I think Lisa said it beautifully, which is you have to start by identifying the problems and then applying some design thinking before you say, "Oh, ChatGPT is so great. Let's just put a chat interface in our platform." And it's like, well, right, maybe. Right. But how are people using your platform today? And where are the pain points? And how could we speed things up? And maybe the way that artificial intelligence or machine learning manifests in your platform is like completely different. Maybe it's behind the scenes. This is the thing. People don't realize like autocomplete. Autocomplete is machine learning. Like really good uh, suggestions when you're typing, that's machine learning. And, you know, the interface interface is just an enhancement on the compose box of whatever you're writing. Mm -hmm. So I think there needs to be a little more thought from companies rather than just say, I want my homepage to be like Google. It's like, what am I going after? What do I have today? And then how do I bring good design thinking, good product thinking to bear to say, here's how we can realize that in this platform. And sometimes it's going to be similar to something that's out there already, either one of your competitors or one of the big, but sometimes it's going to be something that is very different. And the real companies who do well are willing to, take a leap when they see something that's like unique to them that is not out there yet. And they're like, but this is the right way to do it. Let's go after it. Yeah. I, I can't argue with that. Okay, good. <laughs> You're Thank <right>. you. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yeah. And look, and it's, it is to bring it back to design. That's just the basics of good design. And yeah. so when I hear like, oh, I want it to be like Google or chat GPT, our job is to translate what the client's asking for too, because they may not literally mean I want it like Google. They mean I want it to be as simple as it possibly can right. be. I want it to be intuitive to use it. And that applies to any business. So that's that's sort of our job as consultants to to translate that speak into what they really want is simplicity. Right. What are you actually saying? You want simplicity. Yes. yes. Yeah. That's Look, right. I, I think in, in a lot of enterprise software, there's a lot of complexity and a lot of interfaces with a lot of check oh, yeah. boxes and fields and drop downs and date pickers. And, right. and I think that there's a little bit of a longing for like just the simple, well, I mean, certainly for, for me, and I think from some of our 
leaders. And I think sometimes that can be underneath underneath that. But it's true. You, you really have to understand, you know, what's here. What are you asking for? Yeah. We should wrap up. But before we do, Lisa, can we just talk for 10 seconds about your band? Can you tell us what it was? <laughs> what instrument did you play? Were you the singer? Like, give us a little bit of background before we wrap up. Uh, so it wasn't it wasn't brief. It was about ten years. It was three bands. Dang. Um, Dang. That's a music career. Yeah. That, yeah. No, that's a music no, career. No, well, for sure. Career implies one got paid on the regular for it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> nobody said music is easy. Let's just put that out there. <laughs> yeah. No, it was uh, three bands, all three with my husband. He wasn't my husband at the time for the first band, but then he Aww. became my husband awesome. by the time we got to the second the band. The story keeps getting better and better. And I just want to go back. You may not have made money, but you made something. You made music. To Amen. me, that is a career. Oh, that, yes. that counts. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And it started, I don't know, I was in my early 20s. In the 90s. Like, you know. That's wonderful. That is wonderful. I wish I had gone to one of your shows. I love this. I'm going to hit you up for MP3s after this. I was going to say, we'll, new, we'll link new, your SoundCloud new, in the show notes. I was going to say, maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe, yeah. Uh, maybe we need a new uh, show song. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. By the way, if I may throw this in there, we have no shortage of musicians in launch. Oh, I, I like, love we it. We could easily form a band in launch. Easily. I, I think that, yeah, no shortage. Um, Clinton Bonner, yes. our head of marketing, he was a singer in a band. We're going to have an offshoot podcast. I, I think there is a connection between music and technology and design, and there definitely is. I'm going to lay a book on old book, Go to Lesher Bach. Oh, I love that I don't that know if you've book. ever read it. Yeah, because that's it talks about that combination of like math and art yes. and music. And, yes. Yeah. I love it. I love it. <laughs> This was great, Lisa. We absolutely loved having you on. We're going to have you back again. I feel like we only just skimmed it. the surface here. But we really appreciate you being on. Love working with you. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Thank you both. Oh, this was awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I, I could talk about this stuff all day long. Yes. If you are sitting around thinking to yourself, what is my company doing with AI? And are we cost cutting? Are we innovating? Or this thing over here looks kind of interesting. If you want to have that conversation with us, we would love, love, love to hear from you. Send us a note, catalyst at nttdata.com. We read every single one that comes in. We absolutely love to hear from you. Yeah, I think that's it for today. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so Let's much, Lisa. Let's get back Lisa. to work. All right. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Thank Lisa. You. Bye-bye.